Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Good morning, Movement Church. My name is Sarah, and I'm part of the teaching and research team here at Movement. JJ said I'm one of the founding members, which I turned around and said to Mark, our lead pastor, that sounds really serious, like I'm a 75-year-old, and when if we have a building someday, there'll be a brick with my name on it, which actually, you know, I wouldn't mind that. So um, anyways, my name's Sarah, and I have been around kind of since the beginning, and am so blessed and honored to get to share with you this morning in the series Altars. We've been in this series all month. This week is the last week of this series. Um, We are not going to build an altar and set anything on fire this morning, although, you know, that seems really cool to me, and probably if we weren't in the Y, we would do something like that, but we don't want the sprinklers to come on. So we're not going to do that this morning, but we are going to talk about why are altars so important, and we're going to look at one last kind of example of an altar this morning. Before we get into that, though, um, I just recently went on a trip, and I want to show you some pictures, and uh, there's nothing that you can do about it. So um, I got the opportunity to go to France with my parents and one of my sisters at the beginning of the month. We've been bugging my parents to, like, take a trip, go somewhere. Like, you've been married for a long time, and you raised four children, and you don't do fun things for yourself, go on a trip. And they wouldn't go, and I said, like, what if I plan it? And they said, okay, and maybe you could come along. And I was like, this is like a win-win. Okay, yeah, totally. Totally. So we went to France. We have some friends that live over there. We visited them and, of course, got to see some really cool things. Um, it's the first time that I have been to France. And so um, one of my favorite places that we went was in Paris, and it's this chapel that's called the Saint-Chapelle. And um, inside this chapel, the only thing that's in there is stained glass like this, okay? So the room is probably about as long from like the black curtain to this back wall, and the ceilings are, are higher than the ceilings in here, and it's just panel after panel after panel after panel of stained glass. Now, maybe you think stained glass is boring. If so, don't talk to me. I think stained glass is so beautiful. Like, if I could put stained glass in my apartment that I live in, I would do it. I would totally do it. I think it's amazing. So we were in this chapel kind of as the sun is beginning to come down over the horizon. And when, we came, when I came into the room, you come up these like winding staircase, and um, I come into the room, and there aren't very many times in my life where I can say, like, it actually took my breath away, and that is what happened when I walked into this room. It was just like whoa, the room is amazing. And then um, we, we begin to read about what all of these panels of glass are about. And this, the point of, these, of the stained glass was to tell the story of scripture from Genesis all the way around the room to Revelation. So this next picture, um, there's no good, you know, you can't do justice to any of this, but this next picture is just kind of like a one tiny little frame, one panel. And if you look at the lower right-hand corner, what's happening there is God is appearing to Moses in the burning bush. Like, that's how they depicted it. This little bush is all red, and there's a little figure inside of there, and Moses is kneeling down. 
And as you move your way around the room, you come to the front, kind of the altar piece. And over the altar piece, um, this is one of the panels that's in there. And this is harder to see. I had a book that was describing to me like where all these panels are. And at one point I was like kneeling on the ground and looking up like this. All these people were like looking at me and then doing what you do when you see someone acting really strangely. Like they're also looking like, what is this woman looking at? Um, But in the bottom left-hand corner... That is a depiction of Jesus with his arms wrapped around a pole being beaten before he was taken to the cross. So this room, starting in the back left corner, tells the story, Genesis to Revelation, but it takes a break over the altarpiece and it goes out of chronological order so that it can insert the story of Christ front and center. And it works its way through what Jesus went through and Jesus' death on the cross. And then it picks the story back up and it begins to work its way all the way back around. Um, I'll just show you one last picture. This, that's the altarpiece. Um, and it's, it's this domed kind of beautiful shape. Why was this chapel built? There's a lot of history behind it, but part of the reason that the creators of this chapel, and it took a long time to put all of that stained glass in there, but part of the reason that they did it is so that when you walked in, whether you could read or not, you were reminded of the story of who our God is and what he has done. That you looked at these panels and you said, oh yeah, I remember that story. I remember God's faithfulness. I remember what God did. And this is something that we are constantly trying to do. Now, maybe not even just in relation to who God is and what he's done in our lives, but we're always trying to remind ourselves of things. Some of you have to do it more often than others. Um, Maybe it has to do with your age or maybe not. I don't know. We have to constantly remind ourselves of things that have happened or things that we don't want to forget. So those of you who are moms, probably with at least your firstborn, you've got like 9,000 pictures of them and you've got all these, this baby book that's full of all kinds of things. I'm the oldest in my family. And so the joke is like, my baby book is awesome. It's got like every detail of everything that I ever did before I was one, you know, my first word, my first step. It's like time down to the minute. My youngest sister is 10 years younger than I am. I don't even think she has a baby book. Okay. So uh, things change, you know, I get it when you have more children, but we want to remember these things things that are so important to us. You go on a trip and you take a bunch of pictures. Why? Not just so you can torment your friends and your church when you get back, but because you want to remember everything that you saw. You print them off and you hang them in your home. You bring back souvenirs. You want to remember what you saw and you want to remember what you experienced. We do these little tricks, right? We like tie something around our wrist. And every time I look at this bracelet, I want to remember this. In fact, I do that, okay? And um, one of the bracelets that I wear is a bracelet that was made in Honduras because I have friends who have been for a long time, in fact, they're here this morning, waiting to adopt a little boy from Honduras. And so every time I look at this bracelet, the point is I want to be reminded to pray for my friends and to pray for baby brother who's not home yet. We create things, these rhythms, these patterns in our lives to help us remember. You know why you do that? Because God created you to do that. 
You do that because it is woven into the fabric of who you are as an image bearer of God to want to remember. And God knows, because he made us, God knows that we're not always very good at it. It's maybe why some of you use your reminders app in your phone more than any other app. So you don't get home and go like, oh, I knew I forgot something at the grocery store. We want to be people who are rememberers, but so often we are forgetful. And so as we've talked about this series, sometimes the altars that God wants us to build are altars of sacrifice. We talked about that last week. Because there's this danger where good things become God in our lives and God needs to know that we are not following him just for the good stuff we can get out of him, but that we follow him because we love him. And so sometimes we build these altars. God calls us to build altars because they are altars of sacrifice. But also throughout scripture, we see that God wants us to build altars of remembrance. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about the passage where the Israelites came across the Jordan River and God literally said, I want you to get stones out of the river and build a literal altar so that when people look at this thing and they say, what was that for? You can say, oh, let me tell you a story. Sometimes it's a literal altar, a literal object, a bracelet, a photo, a something. But another way that God wants us to remember is by creating a rhythm, a rhythm of remembrance. It's not a thing that we look at. It's something that we do. And this morning, that's what we're going to read about in scripture. We're going to read about maybe one of the most famous rhythms of remembrance that God asked his people to begin to observe. And we're going to read about this in Exodus chapter 12. So if you have a Bible or a phone that turns into a Bible, you can go to Exodus chapter 12. If you're using the Bible under your chair, it's page 52. And as you go to Exodus chapter 12, I want to set the story up for you. In a perfect world, we would have a ton of time and we would just like work our way from the beginning of Exodus until Exodus chapter 12. But most of you want to be able to eat lunch and dinner today, so we won't do that. I'll just give you the overview. At the beginning of Exodus, what we discover is that the people of Israel, they had been living in Egypt for a while. They had moved there because of a famine and because Joseph, a Jewish guy, was uh, second in command in the nation of Egypt. So he brings his whole family there and for a long time they live in favor of the Pharaoh, the guy in charge. But after a while, that Pharaoh dies and the new Pharaohs don't really remember why these people are here. And part of their problem is that the Israelites have been multiplying a lot. So there are millions of Israelites living in the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh gets nervous. Like if these guys want to overthrow us and take over everything and start ruling and, you know, they want to start getting buried in the pyramids, that could happen. So he enslaves the nation of Israel. And for 400 years, they live as slaves in Egypt. And the beginning of the book of Exodus tells us that God is going to have this plan that's going to unfold to bring his people out of slavery. This is a major theme in scripture, beginning to end. So he chooses this guy, Moses, 
And Moses is kind of a loser in all senses of the word. He's not very good at speaking. He's a big scaredy cat. He's also a murderer. Um, But God says like, you're my guy. And he brings him into Egypt. He had run away for a while. He brings him back into Egypt. And he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to say, let my people go. And Moses is like, this is going to go really badly, but okie dokie. So Moses goes in and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. Moses says, okay, I'll come back later. And so 10 times Moses comes before Pharaoh and every time he comes before him, he says, if you do not let my people go, God says some sort of disaster is gonna come on your nation. And so we call these the 10 plagues. All kinds of different things. All of their water turns to blood, which to me, I feel like, why would that not be enough? Like that's appalling, okay? Like get out, we just want our water back. There's gnats, there's flies, there's locusts, there's boils. I mean, seriously, boils on all their people and all their livestock. Again, I would be done at that point, but Pharaoh, he just is holding on. And so it brings us to plague number 10. Plague 10 is described for us in Exodus 11. Plague 10 is the firstborn child is going to die in every family if you don't let us go. And Pharaoh says, I'm not scared of you. Pharaoh is what we would call stubborn, maybe. And so Moses comes back to the people of Israel and he says to them, listen, the angel of death today, tonight, is going to pass over every home. And the firstborn son in each of these homes is going to die unless you follow God's instructions. And this is where we pick the story up in Exodus chapter 12. Page 52, starting in verse 1. While the Israelites were still in the the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother um, that got invited along and all this stuff because Moses wasn't a very good speaker and Aaron spoke for him. Verse 2. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal that you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter, bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating the meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. 
but the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. You have probably heard of this before, the Passover. Maybe you have some Jewish friends and they still observe the Passover. I work at a Christian school and our third graders eat the Passover meal now called the Seder feast every year. And um, I teach high schoolers. And so I usually ask my high school students like, so do you remember the Passover? And they're like, yeah, it was disgusting. I'm like, okay, cool, great. That's all you can remember, that's wonderful. Here's the deal with the Passover. Here's why God lays it out the way that he does. God is saying death and judgment is coming but there's a way out. Judgment is coming for people who are not willing to listen to me and to follow me, but there is a way out. And it's interesting, if you notice the way that these first 13 verses of this chapter unfold, that where God spends most of his time focusing is on this animal that is supposed to be sacrificed. It's a a lamb Or if you didn't have enough money to buy a lamb, you could use a goat, a firstborn, without any sort of defect, a perfect little animal that you're supposed to raise and then slaughter. And there's specific instructions about how you're supposed to take care of the meat, how you're supposed to prepare it, what you're supposed to do with anything that you can't eat. And then notice that he says, and I want you to take the blood and I want you to dip a plant into it and I want you to spread this blood over the doorposts of your house, up both sides and across the top. And when I come to bring judgment on people, I will see that that blood covers you and your home and there will be no death in your household. And I want you to eat this meal with your, with your shoes on. I almost said with your feet on, like that. Yeah, okay. You should also have your feet on. If not, have someone help you. Okay, so you should have your shoes on, and you should be ready to go. It's the reason why, maybe you have also heard um, that when it comes to the Passover, we're talking about unleavened bread, bread that doesn't have any yeast in it. Why not? Because there was no time for that bread to rise. They're essentially baking crackers, so that they can eat it and get out. The idea here, I think, is twofold when we think about the Passover. First of all, the primary focus is on the substitute. God spends most of his time, as he describes the Passover, describing what the substitute will be. The substitute that, if you notice, is going to free them from judgment. The fact that they have to put blood on their doorposts indicates to us that judgment is already on their houses. They deserve the judgment that is coming. But God spends this time saying, look, there's a way out, and let me describe to you what that way out must be. But the second thing that's so interesting to me about the Passover is what God is saying is, look, I want you to have your shoes on and I want you to eat crackers and not this delicious fluffy bread. Why? Because I want you to believe and expect that my deliverance is coming and it is coming soon. We don't have time to waste here, people. 
I am going to move and I am going to act. And maybe you have thought that I have forgotten you because after 10 plagues, you're still stuck in this land. And for 400 years, you have been slaves. But I want you to know that I have not forgotten who you are. I have not forgotten that you are my people. And I have not forgotten that I am going to deliver you. The focus is on the substitute and the focus is on the fact that God is going to deliver. So you better be ready. Now, we're going to jump ahead a few verses. In verse 24, I want you to see what he then says. And he alluded to this even at the beginning of the passage. But in verse 24, he says this. Remember, these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshiped. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. In case there was any doubt at the beginning of this chapter, when we get to verse 24, God makes it very clear. The Passover is intended to be a rhythm of remembrance. Maybe this month as we've been talking about altars, some of you have been thinking like, I'm not building an actual altar in my house. That's weird. I'm not doing that. I feel creepy about that. I'm not building something like that. I'm not doing it. That's fair. But God is now saying, I want you to create a rhythm, a rhythm in your year. So that every time we get back around to this date, the 14th day of the first month of the year, I want you to celebrate this meal. And when your kids look at you and say, mom, why are we eating this food that tastes so gross? Why is this bread like a cracker? I don't like it. You can say, let me tell you what God did for our people. And look, it's easy to remember right at the beginning it's easy to remember the first year after, after they come out of Egypt and everyone sits down and they celebrate the Passover and they go like, oh yes, remember what God did for us. Remember how awful it was when we were all forced to be slaves. Remember how terrible that life was and thank you God for what you did for us. But 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, I don't mean to spoil the story for you, but Israel's gonna come out of Egypt and they're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they get to the land that God promised them. And time after time after time, they turn to Moses and they say, why did you bring us out here to die? I wish you would have just left us in Egypt because at least there we had food. And the point of the Passover was to realign their hearts and their minds, to remember that slavery is never better than freedom. Slavery is never better than the freedom that God wants us to walk in. Our own images of what our past was like is never better than the freedom that God wants to lead us into. And we have to be reminded of that because, oh, how quickly we forget. You all know this. You know this because you all have the ability to do what I do when I think back on things that have happened in my life. 
I have the ability to romanticize just about everything. And so I think back to my time in college and I think like, man, wasn't that awesome when I got to like sleep until 11 every day and it didn't really matter if you went to class or you didn't go to class because like you could probably figure it out. And I didn't really like, yeah, I had a job, but it was like, you know, an, an on-campus job. So I didn't have to make any food. I just got to eat the food that was provided for me. My friends were all around me all the time. And then I go back and I reread my journals from when I was in college and I was like, oh, it wasn't actually that awesome at all. I think I gained 60 pounds when I was in college and I'm not exaggerating, okay? And my friends were good, but they weren't that good. And my classes were really hard. I, we look back at things and we only remember the good. And the other thing that I think is so true about us is that we only think about ourselves. So when I look back at my memories, they all circle around me. They circle around me. I'm the main character. I'm the one that everyone should have been paying attention to. It's only my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions that matter when I look back. And the point of the Passover was to remind people, this is not about you. You didn't save yourself, Israel. I did it. I, your God, set you free. Now, the Passover is an awesome thing. The rhythm of remembrance is beautiful. But it's way bigger and way better than just what God did in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover is going to connect us to something incredible in the New Testament. And some of you maybe already know where we're going. The Passover was never intended to only be something that caused the people to look backwards. The Passover was getting the people ready for Jesus, even though they didn't know who he was or what he was going to do. In the book of John, chapter 1, the book of John is a story about Jesus' life. So Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world, and he begins his ministry among the Israelite people when he's about 30 years old. This is hundreds of years after the original Passover has taken place. And in John chapter 1, verse 35, as he's walking down the road, a guy, a prophet, his name was John, turns and looks at him and says, look, that is the Lamb of God. And if you've been around the church world for a while, you've probably heard Jesus referred to the Lamb. We sing about him as the Lamb that's not just like Jesus said, what do I want my spirit animal to be? I think lamb. Could everyone call me that, please? <laughs> That's not what this is, okay? The fact that John calls him the lamb of God is so significant. And it begins to draw us into the parallels of the Passover from the very first chapter of his book. Just like Exodus chapter 12 centered around the substitute, the lamb that would be sacrificed for them a spotless lamb without any blemish or defect was sacrificed and its blood was spilled and spread over the wooden doorpost of their home. We find that Jesus, after he does his ministry for us, his arms are wrapped around a pole and he's beaten until he's bloody and unrecognizable. And he is stretched out on a cross that his blood runs all over and now, if you are a Christ follower, you have probably said something like, I am saved 
by the blood of the lamb. That just like in Exodus chapter 12, when God says, death and judgment will pass over you because the blood has covered you, the blood of this lamb has taken judgment away. Look, in Exodus chapter 12, the people had no idea that a guy named Jesus was showing up hundreds of years later. They didn't know that. They didn't put the pieces together. Why? Because they live only in their moment. They sound familiar to me. I live only in my moment. I don't do a good job of thinking about what came before and what is coming after because the world is just revolving around me and my issues and my troubles. And God, why are you so long in answering me? And what is your problem? Don't you love me? Don't you want to be good to me? And yet God in Exodus chapter 12, when he said, there's a lamb whose blood is going to cover you and protect you. It was never only about that lamb. God was getting the people of Israel ready for a promise that he wasn't going to fulfill in their lifetimes, but he was going to fulfill it. And he wanted to begin to shape their minds and shape their thoughts and shape their memories so that when Jesus finally showed up, they were able to see him for who he is. And so many people missed it. They looked at Jesus and they said, you don't look like the guy we were expecting. Our Messiah is supposed to come in with the sword and cut down all of our enemies and provide freedom to us. And Jesus says, no, that's never what the Messiah was supposed to do. The father told you hundreds of years ago that the blood of the lamb would provide you freedom. And that's what I'm here to do. My blood is going to cover you and free you. Altars of remembrance should ultimately always remind us that our future is secure in Jesus Christ. That's what an altar of remembrance is about. And if you are anything like me, most of your memories are focused on self. And maybe your rhythms of remembrance are tied to some things that are pretty harmful and painful to you. Maybe you have rhythms of remembrance in your life that are connected to anger. And they're connected to regret. And they're connected to revenge. Every time you drive past a building, you think, I remember what happened to me while I was in there, and I remember the person that did it to me, and I will never forgive that person. Or you see something, an object, a piece, of, a piece of clothing, another person, and you're reminded of something that happened in your past and you're so full of shame. You can't even be around that person. You have to get rid of that thing because our rhythms of remembrance are so self-saturated. I want to say something to you with all of the love that I have. You have to get over yourself. God wants your rhythms of remembrance to point you to him, not to you. Your rhythm of remembrance should draw you into him, into who he is, into remembering not only what he has done, but the fact that everything that he has done, everything that he has allowed in your life has been to direct you to Jesus Christ. 
I don't mean to say that God loves the bad that has happened in your life. Some of you have gone through unspeakable pain and God hates it. But our God, scripture tells us, is a God who can take all things and work them together for good. So I need to stop using these rhythms of remembrance to make me angry. And I need to start saying, God, let my rhythms of remembrance direct my heart to you. What do you have for me? What are you doing in me? How do you want to change me? Your rhythms of remembrance should point you to Jesus. And they should remind you that your future always has been secure in Christ if you are willing to let his blood cover you. As we come to an end this morning... I want to ask you just a couple of questions. What are the rhythms of remembrance that exist in your life? I think that we all have them. We all have things that cause us to constantly reflect and remember events that have happened in our past, good, bad, or otherwise. What are those rhythms What are the things that you do or the objects that you have that point you to remember the past? And secondly, do those rhythms of remembrance point you to our God? Because if not, your rhythms need to be readjusted. Your rhythms need to be changed. Your focus needs to shift. The point of the Passover for the Jewish people was not only to remind them that God had saved them, but to also remind them that God was permanently going to save them in the future. That is what your rhythms should do. To remind you not only of what God has done, but to remind you that in Jesus, everything is going to be made right. There is no reason to despair. There's not. We are a people who are full of hope. Most of the world can't claim that. And if you take a minute to read the news and look around, you understand why people are despairing. But people of God, we do not despair. We are full of hope. Why? Because our rhythms of remembrance don't point us to us. They point us to him. Do your rhythms of remembrance focus on you or do they focus on our God? And what do you need to do to make an adjustment? If you'll close your eyes, I just want to pray for us. I've been reading a lot this week about forgiveness. It just kind of happened that way. And yesterday evening, as I was praying about this morning the Holy Spirit just seemed to really lay that on me. This idea that for many of us in here this morning, our rhythms of remembrance are pointing us to be full of anger and the need for revenge. And followers of Jesus, we have got to let that go.
you have been forgiven by God. And he calls you to forgive the people around you. Forgiving doesn't mean that we just ignore the offense or we say what you did didn't matter and what you did didn't hurt me and I'm ignoring the fact that you did wrong. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget. Forgiveness means that you say, even though you did me wrong, I am not going to seek to retaliate. Instead, I want good for you. If you this morning need to change your rhythm of remembrance to move from revenge to forgiveness, I encourage you to do that now. Father, you are such a good God. And I am so grateful that you are big enough to know the whole story, to know that even as things were unfolding in Exodus with the original Passover, that you were pointing your people forward to what you were going to do in Jesus. And that you wanted this rhythm of remembrance to focus their hearts and their attention and their their identity, everything about themselves on you, not on self. And God, thousands of years later, I still struggle with the same thing. I am so consumed with my own issues and I take my eyes off you regularly. Father, change me. I want my rhythms of remembrance to point me to you. God, for these people here in this room this morning, will you make us people who remember better? And God, for every man and woman in here who is wrestling with the need to forgive, will your Holy Spirit get in there and not let us leave this morning until we are willing to start to make peace? Followers of God are different than the people of the world. We want justice, but we want justice in a way that points people to you. Jesus, transform us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for us so that we can have a new kind of life. And God, I ask this morning that you would make us men and women who really want to walk in that life, who don't just say it with our mouths, but who really want to live it. May today be the start of a new rhythm of remembrance for us today, God. Thank you for what you're going to do here. In Jesus' name, amen.